welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. All right, welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you for listening. And of course, as always, I am your host, Jordan Porta, along with the wonderful Yvonne Brandenburg. <laughs> hey, girl. So Hi. excited. Hey. No. <laughs> it's been a it's been a long week. <laughs> it has been a very long week. I'm we're we're recording this on a Friday night and uh I'm I I'm very excited that I don't work tomorrow. I got plenty of stuff this weekend, but I don't work tomorrow. But uh you have a very busy weekend. So um I, yeah, I we're doing a very this, busy weekend. We're doing this in the wee hours of the evening. <laughs> yeah, so I can get on to my weekend of <laughs> my daughter's gymnastics competition and then hopefully like spending some time having fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, I don't think we have any housekeeping this week other than just, I'll just say that I hope everybody enjoyed our last couple episodes, especially the vet tech, um, Kelsey interview. I enjoyed that. I learned a lot. I was going to say, I listened back to it and there, and it was, it was cool because I definitely picked up stuff that I didn't get while we were talking to her so uh, it, that was really cool and it seemed like everybody really liked it it was a pretty popular episode um, oh so yeah that, so that was really cool she's a popular person she <laughs> is and I think I think her new song her video should be dropping any day now right any day now yeah last I saw it it was gonna be in the next week so okay. by the time this episode goes out it, it may be launched so um, definitely take a look out for her new song. She did a collaboration with someone, which yeah. sounds really cool. This week, I think we're kind of tying up our GI segment. So we're yep. kind of going to end on feeding tubes, just indications and placements, all the different types of feeding tubes. I did So yeah, I did a lot of research on the different types of feeding tubes. I have to say I've only used three of the four of these types of feeding tubes. So the feeding tube types are nasoesophageal or nasogastric. They kind of go hand in hand. So I'm considering that one, mm -hmm. um, even though they technically go in different places, but in the same places. The, um, the end of them and different places, but yeah, but placement's yeah. pretty similar. Yeah. Esophagostomy tubes and then gastrostomy tubes and then the jejunostomy tubes. I've never used those. And like I, when I was writing this up, I was talking to my doctor about it a little bit. I was like, wait, you've never used a gastrostomy? No, no. I've never used a jejunostomy. Oh, I was like, dude, what? Yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah, I've definitely used the other three. I've just, I was asking my doctor, I was like, when would we ever place a tube in the jejunum? Like, I mean, like mm. I know I've read about it, but like, I wasn't sure when we would ever do that. And he was like, no, we don't really do that. I was like, okay. Yeah. I think we talked about doing it in one where they had, I can't remember if it was the, if the mass was resected mm -hmm. or there was some mass in the actual stomach. Um, oh yeah. And that was, we had talked about doing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I have it, I think down in my indications for use. I just, yeah, I don't know if I've ever worked with one. 
No, I, yeah, I So first one up is our NG tubes, nasogastric, nasoesophageal tubes. Those are indicated for patients with like a functioning esophagus, stomach and intestines. It is not recommended for those patients who are just excessively vomiting or have Ooh, respiratory no. disease or comatose or lack gag reflux. So it is not recommended for those patients. However, it is good for short-term anorexia, supplementing oral intake. And I use it a lot in my ICU for gastric distension. So when we have mm -hmm. a lot of like those dogs who just have stasis and it's not like their guts just aren't doing anything and their stomach just keeps filling up with fluid. So we use that a lot to actually aspirate versus trickle feeding them through. Yeah, we use, we use, I would say we use more NE tubes, so nasoesophageal than NG tubes yes, in my definitely. clinic. But yeah, we use them, we use them a ton, especially like our pancreatitis patients, mm -hmm. GI stasis. We, I know like uh, a lot of our post-op uh, like cholecystectomies, they mm. tend to also have pancreatitis because everything's just mad in there mm -hmm. um, and they don't want to eat. And then they like get herpy. And so we tend to use the NE tubes. Um, and and it, it's interesting because my doctors prefer the NE tube because you're not going into the cardiac sphincter. So, yeah. right. The, the sphincter that goes from the esophagus into the stomach, because we tend to see when we do that, like our patients tend to be, tend to have way more regurgitation just because mm -hmm. you're going through the, the sphincter and it just makes it mad. So we typically do any twos more than NG unless you've got a ton of fluid in there and you got gastric distension and you're having to suction out. Yeah. If we're feeding, we use, um, any tubes. If we're mm -hmm. removing, we use yeah. NG tubes. <laughs> yeah. So, and then those require like liquid or thinning of food. And I've done a lot of like the ones that we do use for feeding. I just put them on a CRI. You can bolus feed them liquid, but CRIs tend to be easier <laughs> for me. <laughs> so then the next uh, feeding tube type that we kind of talk about is esophageal tubes or E-tubes. And that also requires like a liquid or recovery diet. A lot of these ones that I've placed, like we'll have people blenderize their normal food depending on their patient's disease. Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of our patients that we're placing E-tubes in, we don't want to send them home with the AD diet. <laughs> so, and that can be used either CRI or bolus as well, but we do a lot of bolus feeding with those and that's indicated mm -hmm. a lot in like our hepatic lipidosis cats, our cancer cats. We do it a lot in cats. We have a few dogs, but definitely do it more in cats with anorexia, mm -hmm. oral surgery, trauma. Um, but same thing, not recommended for those vomiting or respiratory disease patients. Right. The, the oral surgery I thought was pretty interesting though. I was like, man, I guess I never thought about it, but it makes total sense, but I don't do oh, that. I've, so. <laughs> I was going to say, I've definitely seen those dogs, the, the, well, dogs, but I've mostly cats I think of, um, that are like hit by car and they have like jaw fracture and they have to wire their jaw Oh yeah, and stabilize it. And then we'll place an E-tube. Um, because the nice thing is, you know, it is for a longer term so mm -hmm. they can go home with it and, and the owners can, you know, feed their pets and yeah, exactly. not have a problem. Yep. And then those gastrostomy tubes. Um, I enjoy these ones because it's just an interesting procedure, which mm -hmm. I'll, I'll definitely get into. I've only assisted in placing like a handful of them, but they're always Same. like, they're always interesting and not fun, but interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think they're fun. <laughs> it's like, it's a, weird. <laughs> it's a little weird to be stabbing like a giant needle through the body wall. And it's, it's just weird. It is weird, but it's, it's cool. Weird. Yeah. yeah. 
And then pretty much all of these tubes are a liquid or recovery diet or a gruel of the commercial diet where we just blenderize it with food. Mm-hmm. Same thing, CRI or bolus, but again, most of these we're doing like a feeding bolus. So like m- when patients go home with this, they're f- the clients are feeding them mm-hmm. two or three or four times a day um, as like a normal diet. We do these a lot with our pancreatitis patients, hepatic lipidosis. And I do these, I've only done these in dogs. I've never done these things cats. So I think it's like E-tubes for cats and peg tubes for dogs. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to think of the ones that I've done. I, yeah. I think it is mostly dogs. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's just because of size of the peg tube. So peg yeah. or, or the percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy. So percutaneous is like going through the skin. Um, So we're going through the abdominal wall into the stomach using an endoscope for placement. So a peg tube, just easier to say peg tube. But yeah, I, I, I think most of them have been dogs. um, Mm -hmm. Whereas cats, esophageal tubes are just a little easier, I think for maintenance too. Yeah, definitely. And which when I was getting into like the reasons, so hepatic lipidosis, pancreatitis, anorexia, esophageal strictures. I know I've placed one for that reason mm-hmm. while we were like ballooning. Yeah. Oral Ooh. surgery, same thing, trauma, cancer, and then neurologic disorders. Like I, and then I've used it a lot in like mega esophagus dogs, just bypass the esophagus. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but this one can be used in patients who are vomiting or have respiratory disease, because if they vomit, it's not going to, to be, bring up the tube. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, I mean, in theory, hopefully. Oh God, that'd be if, all sorts if of done that. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And then the respiratory disease, because you're not going through the esophagus, you know, you have less chance of the tube going into the airways is the big thing. That's why the other ones, because you're so close to the airway, mm-hmm. if they vomit, it can get dislodged, displaced and go into the airway and just cause respiratory issues. So gastroscopy is better for that. Mm-hmm. I think of these two as, as longer term patients. Definitely. Too. Cause I think we like for our patients who have these, like it's kind of like a lifelong thing and we'll replace it once a year mm. like, or unless it becomes like damaged or something, but it's just a yearly thing that we just replace, but it's their lifelong thing. Wow. Yeah. I I think I've only seen one with like for a few months, but it's, you know, it's long-term, which is nice. I mean, if you have a patient with issues Mm -hmm. and you want to get nutrition because everybody should have nutrition, you know, it's it's nice because you have that option to get them nutrition Yeah, and you're bypassing the fighting with the front, you know, the face of not wanting to eat. So, yeah. And then the last one is the jejunostomy tube. I have notes on this one, but I'm not I'm not going to admit that I'm familiar with it because I'm not, but I do know it needs to be just like a purely liquid diet because your jejunum is not going to be able to break down foods Mm -hmm. um, like the normal gastrointestinal tract. So CRI or bolus is also good for that. This is used with severe pancreatitis patients, intestinal anastomosis, um, coma, and then same thing can also be used in vomiting or respiratory patients because them it's got to go through a lot more if they vomit um <laughs> for it to actually cause a problem yeah yeah the patient that we looked at was a patient that had had a really horrible mass like because you're bypassing the duodenum right so you're you're bypassing the stomach you're bypassing the duodenum the duodenum is where your pancreatic ducts come in your your 
you know, bile ducts and all that. So it was a patient that had a mass that was like obstructing the bile duct, but also kind of messing with the pancreatic duct. And so they had to do this whole like rewiring of things in there. And then they put the jejunostomy jujun- tube in because of that. Mm-hmm. I I think there was a lot of complications with the patient in general, but I think that was the only one where I had seen them starting to place it. I think there was just surgical complications. Yeah. Um, but you know, that was the one where I knew they were going to be using it in this patient. Yeah. Yeah. And then we typically kind of gear towards feeding two placements when other feeding routes like syringe feeding or force feeding just can't be utilized. Like either the patients are unable or unwilling to consume the food and we it's kind of recommended in a lot of the books that they should be consuming at least 85% of their calculated RERs. I know we talked about what RERs are in one of our GI episodes early <laughs> right. back. Yeah, the resting energy requirement, yeah. And then it's just one of those things where like if it's too stressful to be force feeding a patient, like just give them a break, place a tube and take the stress off of everybody. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's interesting. I've, I've heard of some people really like these for kidney patients. Mm-hmm. And part of that is you can give water through the GI tract instead of doing sub-Q fluids. So oh, it's nice. kind of an interesting concept that instead of poking them all the time, you have you know, your, your feeding tube with wherever it is. Right. And they can absorb water that way and, and keep hydrated, which is, which is kind of nice. And and we all know that kidney cats just because of the disease process get nauseous, but then they kind of have that muscle wasting and cachexia. And so, you know, being able to supplement and keep them, you know, healthier with nutrition is huge for these guys too. So. Yeah, exactly. And then so kind of, we kind of briefly touched on this, but NG tubes or NE tubes and jejunostomy tubes are short-term care for patients. So we're talking like three to 10 days. They're not meant for long-term. Most of these tubes are also made out of polyvinyl chloride or PVC tubes. And they they should be used short term because they do become stiff with prolonged use and the stiffer they become the more irritation they can cause to the patient um versus our long term use tubes like our e tubes and our gastrostomy tubes those ones can be i mean like i said the gastrostomy tubes i've had in for a year before we mm-hmm. replace the e tubes are 1 to 20 weeks and a lot of times we do like those we'll place a feeding tube and then like as the cat wakes up from anesthesia they start eating that never yeah. happens. Right? Oh my God. <laughs> Every single time I'm like, well, just keep it in. Yeah. You can give the medications through the tube. So you don't have to fight with that. Yeah. It's, it's almost, we joke and call it the therapeutic E2 yeah. placement. Yeah. Us too. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then a lot of times though, we've had a couple stay in for like a few months and like, because mm-hmm. people be eating, but only maybe like half of their normal amount. And so it just yeah. doesn't take time. So those ones are made out of polyurethane or silicone, and those are best for long-term use because they don't become stiff. Yeah, and we've we have some NG tubes that are the polyurethane or silicone. I can't remember which one it, mm-hmm. which which one it is, but they are nicer, and in our patients tend to like them more. Mm-hmm. But we also typically don't send home an ear ng tube. Oh no, we don't either. I've heard of some clinics doing it and it just freaks me out cuz oh, I just picture bad things happening. Um so most of the times we use them like in clinic, but yeah, we don't yeah, we yeah. don't send them home. 
yeah, we only use NG tubes or NE tubes in clinic. Um, mm-hmm. And it's either until the point of the patient removing them or until like <laughs> right. they go home. And then You're like, like oh, it. thanks, Fluffy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So moving into placements. So mm-hmm. NE tubes and NG tubes are placed the same. I'll talk about the different measurements for both in a minute. The supplies needed are lidocaine or ophthalmic drops. I, we use preparacaine sometimes. Same. Yep. And then a five to eight French tube. So these ones are smaller in diameter, which is why a liquid diet is recommended. Sterile lubricant, suture or glue, and then a lure slip catheter plug, which I call them Christmas trees. That's what we use to oh, stick yeah. into them. Yeah. And then of course an e-collar. It says plus or minus an e-collar, but none of these patients like this. Like they should always have an e-collar. Yeah, they should. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you're, you're shoving something in their nose. Nobody right? likes this. No, I know. <laughs> And not to mention, like, as you breathe and, like, just, just can't, it can't be good. So we measure from the nasal planum along the side of the patient to the caudal margin of the last rib. And this is for NE tubes, so nasal esophageal tubes. For NG tubes, you're going to measure probably three to four inches past the, that last rib, depending, depending on the size, on the of, the size of the patient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like measure Glad all the way to the colon. <laughs> right? You're like, oh, bye. Yeah. <laughs> it just comes out the other end. You're like, oh. Yeah. And it's a good idea to, um, so depending on the kind of tube that you use, I, I like the Mila's um, mm-hmm. or Mila, sorry, which are potato, <laughs> potato, right? Um, because they have measurements on them. So you mm-hmm. can be like, when you look, you can be like, okay, I'm going to the 20 or, you know, whatever it is. Whereas like if you're using like the red rubber, you don't mm-hmm. really have that. So sometimes I'll put like a piece of tape with, yeah. with obviously with buddy tabs so I can take it off. But that way, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm placing the tube, I have a idea of how far I think it should go in mm-hmm. um, and not lose that spot because that always happens to me. If I don't mark it or note it, I have no yeah. clue. I'm like, oh, I measured and now I don't know how long that was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's recommended. So place a few drops of the lidocaine or preparacaine into the nose. Wait 10 to 15 minutes for full anesthesia, uh, analgesic effect. And I usually do both sides. Yeah, I do both sides yeah. too, just because I don't really know in the moment which side I actually am going to choose. <laughs> like yeah. I just, I think Depends I do, on which I one's going to work better too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'll admit that sometimes I feel like I'm in a rush and I probably haven't waited the 10 to 15 minutes. I definitely um, am horrible about waiting. Yeah. Like it's hard. It needs to be one of those things where like I give the drops and then I go like get my supplies versus getting all my supplies first. And then right? like, <laughs> You're like, oh, whoops. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the things about this too is when you're obviously when you're placing it in the nose, you want their nose to be like straight up in the air and then mm-hmm drop it in, especially if you've got one of those really long nose dogs, you know, you could do a couple of drops versus like a pug, right? Yeah. Like they well, have you don't no want to drown the pug. Right? <laughs> exactly. But a dog with like a big, like long nose, you're, you may need a couple more drops than like a pug and then just like hold it, hold their muzzle up in the air for a little bit. They're probably going to sneeze at you, but try to hold it up as, be- as long as you can. Cause it'll help it, you know, go through the nose versus just coming out the front. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you said, so hold the nose up. I also like to hold the nose kind of like as straight as I possibly can mm. or have my, whoever's assisting me hold it as straight as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. And then, so you want to direct the tip and I find it helpful. You like how in the video I'm doing this to myself. I kind of, I wish I had, I could take pictures <laughs> of this because she's making the pig nose at me. It's, it's awesome. You guys, <laughs> because I know what I'm thinking. So <laughs> you want to direct the tip of the tube up caudal ventral so like up first but like i like aim to push. for the opposite eyeball yeah so i like to push up on the nose so it's more of like a direct shot <laughs> like, <laughs> and then you're gonna oh go God. i know i, I know. love this it's amazing <laughs> then you're gonna go kind of like in a medial direction and then you're gonna want to go ventral lateral so it does it's a very it turns <laughs> it does but uh. if you can get it to just if I feel like if you can just get it to start the nose guides itself <laughs> yeah as I say I usually the hardest part is finding the right mm-hmm. hole to go in right because we're talking about we're going in the nose which has the sinuses and all that stuff and so if you if you don't get in the right passageway you're you're not going to get to the mm-hmm. oral pharynx um it's just gonna like and then and you're stuck and you're like yeah dang it and, and you don't want to push and because like, yeah because you're going to cause bleeding so yeah you like hit mm-hmm. resistance i mean like we work in vet med like anytime there's resistance you stop <laughs> yeah so, like, exactly so and then kind of like i showed yvonne um pushing <laughs> on the external nares dorsally to open them up just ensures passage into the oral pharynx area and that's why i do it i like to make dogs look pig nose mm-hmm. and so I'll, I'll guide it through until the marked area on the tube a lot of times like because these patients don't need full sedation you want to kind of see them swallow like you'll get to that oral pharynx area and then you want to see them swallow because mm-hmm. they should feel it yeah. yeah i've had a couple patients where they were like just sedated just due to just being that ill yeah that they it's don't a little swallow bit, for you I know and it's not yeah. great because I'm like I don't I don't know <laughs> yeah but I confirm with radiographs and water if you administer water obviously they're gonna cough that's bad yeah so we always do two view radiographs yep lateral so and VD. a lateral and a VD because I know plenty of people who just like do one lateral and they're like yep it looks good and then they like start feeding and and they were not in the esophagus they were actually mm-hmm. in the trachea so now we've just uh we just gave them aspiration pneumonia so yeah. two view x-rays and i always have my doctor confirm be like yeah mm-hmm. that looks good and then i have her look before i suture in and and make sure yeah and i pull and back I, so like i'll put a syringe on and i'll pull back like if i'm getting just air after, like syringe full of air after air after air i'm like i'm in the wrong spot i should be getting like negative pressure Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. i'm gonna get maybe one syringe full of air but then i'm gonna get like i'm eventually gonna get negative pressure because i in the right place yeah and and or fluid it's funny because we don't do water right away we don't either i take x-rays first yeah we definitely do x-rays first confirm and then you know, and and this is this is something too. Like if you have a patient that all of a sudden starts coughing, you're in the wrong place. Like yeah. you don't even have to do X-rays. You're in the wrong place. Um, so hopefully you can get them to to swallow and instead of coughing. And there are weighted tubes. Like I mm-hmm. think Myla has like has the ones where the tips are weighted, so they tend to do better. I like those. Yeah, 
but you know, especially you just, you just have to make sure it's in the right place. Cause unfortunately I've definitely seen a couple of, you know, uh, what is it? Nosocomial or I should yeah. nosocomial, um, aspiration pneumonias where, you know, someone did not check placement and all of a sudden they start feeding and then they start coughing and we're like, great, well, we just put, you know, five to 10 mils of food in the trachea, which is yeah. bad. And then I feel like I'm going to briefly discuss suturing, but everybody sutures differently. Yeah. Suture however it works best for you because I will suture like right at the tip of the nose and then I'll bring it down along the side, even though I know it can, they can, they can catch it with their foot more. I just, they don't seem to tolerate it as well when I suture like up onto the bridge of their nose really and then up the head. De- I think it depends on the shape of their nose yeah. and like where the tube kind of wants to go and like where their eyeball is. Like it just really depends. Like I end up doing it in different places just based on like what kind of nose yeah, I'm definitely. dealing with. And it's funny because I actually, so someone taught me this, which I love is they place a um, staple at the corner oh. of the nose first and then suture to the staple. Oh, okay. Instead of suturing on the, on the nose. Cause they tend to tolerate a, a quick staple better than like suturing. And it yeah. depends on the person too. But I like, I like the staple because it's, it's easy to place. It's easy to remove. If you need to move your tube, you know, you can just cut your suture off of the staple, mm-hmm. posi- reposition things, and then just re-suture to the staple. And then you're not actually, you know, poking the, poking dog, the dog again, which is kind of nice. Yeah. Um, so again, it's totally personal preference, mm-hmm. but I have, we have some pictures that I can, I can share about, um, esophageal tubes too. Yeah. Yeah. And then complications. So epistaxis, you're more than likely going to see some epistaxis, um, lack of tolerance and removal from patient. And then of course, aspiration pneumonia, if Mm. you are in the incorrect spot or if they sneeze or cough and it comes out or vomit. And then, like I said, so for our NG tubes, the nasogastric tubes, we're going to measure, I'm going to do air quotes, three to four inches past the last rib, just because (laughs) it depends on the size of the patient. Yeah. But same placement procedure. But these patients, kind of like Yvonne said in the beginning, because you're going through that cardiac sphincter, you increase the risk of gastroesophageal reflux. And in turn, that increases the risk for esophageal strictures. Mm. Yeah. It's again, it's useful for aspiration. Mm. It is not great if you're infusion. Yeah. Um, So aspirating good, infusing, just any (laughs) better, less complications. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then our e-tubes, mm-hmm. these ones require anesthesia, but not like a surgical depth. We call it twilight. Mm-hmm. They're not quite like, they're not super deep, but they're also not able to like bite my finger when I stick it in their mouth. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. In in theory. Yeah. So I got my, I got my surgeon <laughs> bit. Um, so this is what I was going to say. Uh, it's not on your list, but please, 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 please make sure to put a mouth gag in these patients Mm -hmm. because like I said, I got my surgeon bit. It was a, it was this ancient cat that we were placing an esophageal tube on and he was in there and she just perfectly bit into his finger, chomped down Mm -hmm. like with canines into his finger. It was the only time I heard him ever cuss like that. And I was like, Oh, I 
just got my surgeon bit in my hand. I, I was, oh, it, he's fine. But I was just like, oh God, it's going to fall off and he's going to lose his job. So anyways, use a mouth gag. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, we, yes, we do use mouth gags. Um, yeah. And these patients are placed in right lateral recumbency, which is very different than all the other procedures I do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the only one that goes in right lateral. I always put them in the wrong position for this because I'm like, left lateral and then i was like oh dang it's no right lateral, yeah right lateral yeah i i've taught myself now that i just stand on a different side of the table when like i'm doing yeah. each procedure we usually um, place these in radiology so hmm. it makes more sense when i'm in radiology because my patient's head's face to the left anyways mm-hmm. so they tend to be in the right position but if i'm doing this in my scope room forget Mm -hmm. it i always put it in the wrong place yeah that's true um we clip the hair on from the ventral midline to near dorsal midline i am a i have a really bad tendency of overshaving um but you know that can't be too bad yeah i i don't know if i overshave i like hair to be far away (laughs) yeah well it's just easier for the clients too when they're when they're maintaining these at home when it's easier for them because you know those ones that get like super gunky yeah like no matter what you do and then it just like if there's hair anywhere near it it like finds it yeah and it sticks to it yeah 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 anyway yeah um supply supplies for this procedure include like a kelly or carmalt forceps scalpel blade um of course your tube measured tape or suture to secure or both i do both um and then your lower slip catheter plug or your christmas tree and then depending on what type of tube you're using yes exactly because we use red rubbers for our e-tubes like we use the the Mylas. They're the clear ones. I love them. Yeah. They have their own like little device too, right? Mm-hmm. They're really nice. Yeah. I, I've gone to a wet lab for placing like e-tubes oh. and stuff and I learned how to place it with those, but my doctor places it like the old school way, red rubbers and forceps. Yeah. I think the, pro- so my doctors prefer the, the Mylas because it's the, it's the material, right? Mm-hmm. So especially cause we're leaving them in a long time, red rubbers tend to get really stiff. They mm-hmm. tend to crack because they've been in there a long time. So the, the Mylas, we tend to use those cause they're going to be in longer and we don't have as many issues with them. Yeah. And they um, seem more comfortable with our patients. Yeah. I would probably, I mean like that's what they're made for. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we measure to the wings of the atlas and mark the tube. I measure to like the eighth rib. That's like, yeah. But according to wings to the atlas. Yeah. It doesn't seem far enough for me. Yeah. We definitely, we go way further than that. I know some people measure to like the shoulder blades kind of like they use the back of the shoulder blades. Yeah. Measure to the eighth rib. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'll, Obviously, with these, I take a lot of x-rays just to ensure, like, it's right where I want it between, like, the eighth and the ninth rib, just because if if you, like, are near that cardiac sphincter, like, near the diaphragm, like, it does cause irritation. And vomiting in our patients. We don't want it. So your doctor likely, likely, because I most, I don't, I suture these in. (laughs) That's so funny because I'm usually the one using, I'm usually the one holding the forcep for the doctor. Yeah. As they make the incision, opening the forcep, grabbing the tube, and and helping start to pull through. 
I more yeah. like hold the forceps and then he makes the incision. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, so use the forceps. So you, the, whoever is doing the forceps goes down the esophagus as, and pushes outward in the cervical tissue. I can't help, but like make the motions for what I'm doing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I, um, I have plenty of pictures. Like I actually documented one with pictures. Oh, um, so I can, I can throw that together and we can put that in the tech treasure trove Perfect. so that people can see what the heck we are talking about. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, so pushing outward in the tissue, the incision is made and the tube is pulled through, obviously avoiding your jugular, which mm. usually when you're pushing up, you can see the jugular pulsing. Yeah. Avoid it. Don't cut there. Do if you go too far there. to the side, you're in a lot of muscle and it can bleed more too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're going to pull the tube through the incision with the forceps and pull it into the esophagus. And then the tricky part is usually the doctor (laughs) grabs the tube and like shoves their hand into the throat and like flips the tube to go down the esophagus versus up the esophagus. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of guide it down until your measured point. Mm -hmm. And then I will say just a quick tip on this is make sure when you're doing that, that you don't accidentally go around the the tube. tube. (laughs) Yeah. So the endotracheal tube, don't wrap around the endotracheal tube because then you have to take your esophageal tube out of the esophagus again. And you know, which is a pain in the butt because your forceps are already out of the hole and to try to find the hole again is like, yeah. So just make sure your endotracheal tube, um, because again, these guys are usually anesthetized. Um, is we not usually, in the way. <laughs> we tie them on the bottom jaw to try to avoid that. We um, try. It depends on the animal, either bottom yeah. jaw or we, you know, tie it in the back and we just make sure we're holding it down. So yeah, yeah. Complications for this include displacement due to vomiting, infection at the incision site. Like I kind of said, they can get a little oozy. Aspiration pneumonia um, after vomiting um, because they vomit up the tube and now it's in the incorrect position. Mm -hmm. Um, I will throw a couple extra complications in here that I've seen aside from like bleeding and I've seen horners actually from this. I haven't seen it, but I've, I've heard of it. Um, I think my doctor has seen it, but I haven't. It now goes on our consent form because I'm like, it happened once. (laughs) So Mm. now we tell people. (laughs) Nice. So, and then the gastrostomy tube I'm, I'm going to so talk this about is our, our peg tube. Yeah. Yes. Our peg definitely. tube. These definitely require an- general anesthesia. I did read that it could be like light anesthesia again, but I don't agree. I mean, that. I guess what's, what's their definition of light anesthesia? It was like not surgical plane, which I mean, I guess I get because you're not really technically cutting into anything. So like the pain's not But that. you are. Well, you're sticking a giant needle through something. Yeah, but to put that tube through, you're making. Yeah, I don't. Mm, most of my patients respond when we're placing these, anyways. Mm-hmm. So I, I would yeah. say general anesthesia. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then these can place be placed endoscopically, which is how we do it blindly, which scares the hell out of me. Or surgically, because if you're already in surgery. Removing a mass or something like you might as well just or throw a one horrible in. form body that's been there for a while. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. Yeah. The blindly I did read like obviously has a lot more complications, which I'll kind of get into. Like all the complications I'm going to list, those risks drastically increase when you do this blindly. Right. Um, but endoscopically, we're, I'm going to kind of stick to because that's what yep. I know. Um, so supplies needed include the endoscope <laughs> and hmm. your endoscopic graspers. 
um, a Pezzer catheter and a 14 gauge either needle or catheter and a catheter guide, lube, and a lure slip catheter plug. Is the Pezzer catheter the actual like peg tube? Yeah. Okay. I was like, Pezzer catheter? Got it. Peg tube. I just call it a peg tube. We have a kit. We use yeah, the kit. We have a kit. <laughs> I think it's, again, I think it's a Mila. Yeah. We use, yeah. That's what yeah. we use. So the placement includes, so we go down with a scope. We find kind of where we want to go via scope and we'll use the scope to kind of push out on the stomach. Yeah. A lot of times you can see the light from the, and yeah. From, <laughs> from our endoscope or from our scope excuse me yeah and then you can i do the push with my finger yep that's what we did and we're like we, where is it so mind where? you this <laughs> this area is shaved and scrubbed and cleaned because you are inserting something from outside the body wall into mm-hmm. yeah. um so yeah we'll push with the endoscope outward and then we'll push with like our, our sterile finger inward just to kind of see and then what we do is we take the big giant scary needle um that has a cool guide on it and we'll insert it through the area and through the body wall into the stomach. And then we use the endoscopic graspers to pull the string or the guide throughout the esophagus. And then therefore now I have a long wire like string from outside the body wall to outside the mouth. Yep. And then we wrap our pig tube around the string and pull it back through the mouth into the stomach. And then pull it through the body wall, which is always so scary. I'm so worried that oh, God, it freaking wire is going to like break because like we just use a needle. We don't actually make an incision. So we're pulling yep. a larger thing through a very small hole. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think it's every time I'm like, oh God, okay, yeah. here we go. Yeah. And we watch with a scope as we pull through. Mm-hmm. So we know, so the way they look is there's like a little ball like half ball on the end of them on the Mm -hmm. inside of the body um so we'll watch with our scope and make sure that there's enough distance between the body wall and the stomach wall um and the the peg tube itself just because most of these patients are skinny and the goal is to get them to gain weight so we do want some like leeway Mm -hmm. now for these it requires a minimum of 12 hours needed for a temporary stoma to form before you can begin feedings that is not required for any of the other tubes that we previously discussed and then yeah, and a stoma is basically the body's ability to kind of patch it because again we're going from the stomach through the abdomen through the body wall so if if anything leaks out of that then it would just go into the abdomen so you want the the body to form a patch which takes about 12 hours to do that mm-hmm before we start really using it. Yeah, because we definitely don't want to cause any like peritonitis or anything Ooh, like that. No. Um, and then it takes seven to 10 days for a permanent stoma to form. So a lot of these patients, like like so we use it long-term, so they never mm-hmm. really come out. But complications mm-hmm. seen from this can be splenic laceration if you're poking in the wrong area. <laughs> um, don't poke gast- the spleen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Gastric hemorrhage. Uh, pneumoperitoneum, where you're mm-hmm. inserting air into the abdominal cavity, aspiration pneumonia, tube removal if you pull too hard or it just doesn't go mm-hmm. through or it breaks. It definitely could break. The- now, these are pretty sturdy. Like the way they get pulled on, I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. Um, I was going to say dogs chewing on it. Yes. Bad. Tube migration. So if it were to somehow slip out of the stomach wall and into like the body cavity, Mm-hmm. That would be bad. And then peritonitis and stoma infection, just like we talked about our E2 placement. But a lot of times these 
patients, like especially when we get the low profile ones, it's they're so well tolerated. Yeah. I feel like out of all of the e-tubes, like the feeding tubes, I guess I mm-hmm. should say, I think these are the most well tolerated, mm-hmm. but they're also the scariest for clients. Mm-hmm. So and doctors. <laughs> and so it's a more expensive they... procedure because we're using yeah, an endoscopic, sure. like we're doing an endoscopic procedure. Unless, like I said, they're already in surgery and they just place one. But yeah, yeah, yeah more definitely expensive. agree. Mm-hmm. And then the gymnostomy tube. Um, so this is indicated, like Yvonne said, when the upper GI tract must be rested or pancreatic stimulation must be decreased or there's a mass or something obstructing. Mm-hmm. Um, and these can be placed surgically or through threading with a gastrostomy tube for transpyloric placement. However, Mm. there's not a ton of studies on it and it doesn't, from what I was reading, it doesn't really like go well. I mean, I hope someone out there is like, no, we do these all the time. And like, that's Mm. how we do it. That'd be great because it was said like not really recommended. It's done a lot in humans, but in animals, like you need to be highly skilled and very patient um, to do that. But complications include osmotic diarrhea and vomiting, and the clogging of those tubes is really common because they're so small. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I was like, why are they clogging? It's liquid. But that makes sense because the the diameter, tube diameter is smaller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we'll kind of go into, like I said, I don't know a ton about the jejunostomy tubes, so I don't, I've never seen one placed. Yeah, I. It sounds like it's more of a surgical, just kind of insert and suture in. And yeah, it's definitely like everything else. It's definitely a surgery thing. Um, it's very specific, and I feel like it's not. It's definitely not common. So, yeah. um, like I said, I think I've seen like one. Um, yeah, a long time ago. Um, there's just so many complications, I think, with it that. Mm. And those are short term. It seems like a lot to do for something that you can only use for three days. So, yeah. So a lot of these patients though that we send home like client communication is key. I mean, these appointments, these discharge Ooh, appointments yeah. take me at least 40 minutes to just go through everything, to go through clear instructions on how to feed because we've talked about refeeding syndrome a little bit. Um here and there, we don't want to feed too fast or too rapidly, so we want to gradually increase the volume of food per day. Not to mention, you're diluting the food down with water the majority of times, so they're not getting as many calories. So therefore, you're going to increase that volume each day to what's tolerable, but to what meets their requirements to put on weight and to to get the adequate nutrition that they need. Mm-hmm. And so I talk with clients about warming the food, making sure it's room temperature. Water should be room temperature because cold or hot items going in those can definitely cause some irritation and aggravation mm-hmm. to these patients. I, I do the whole like inside of your arm thing, like mm-hmm. the baby, baby formula. Not that I have kids, but I, I know like, so mm-hmm. if you put the food like on your, the inside of your arm and it's, and you can tolerate it both hot or cold, then it's usually fairly well tolerated in the esophagus. Um, but yeah, these, these go homes, these appointments, it usually takes me an hour to go over mm-hmm. everything because yeah. I made a handout. (laughs) Yeah. I was gonna say we have handouts. We have so many handouts for this, but it really is, it is time consuming. But the nice thing is once the clients understand it, Mm -hmm. it's fairly straightforward, but yeah. Cause they are easy to use. Yeah. It's just terrifying at first because you don't want to just push food in. You want to give, I like to give about, 
a mil a minute, maybe. No, I probably do a little bit faster than that. Maybe five mils a minute. And it, it's, right. it's time consuming, but it's not scary. As Just as long as we inform clients, like just don't just rapidly push the food and water in. Yeah. I, I say, um, imagine they're taking bite-sized amounts, right? So they take yeah. a little bite, they swallow it. They take another bite, they swallow it. Take yeah. a little bite. Yeah. So I, I try to tell them, you know, we don't want to stretch the stomach super fast or so not pushing a ton because the stomach stretches, but not so much. So like really quickly. So if you try to feed it too fast, they'll just vomit. Mm -hmm. Um, so you want to go slow, you want to monitor them. If they, you know, get restless and uncomfortable, that may mean that they're about to vomit and get nauseous. Mm -hmm. So I usually you, say, stop, give them some time yeah. come back later. And you want them sternal. Most of these patients when feeding, mm -hmm. I do try to stress that to my clients because if they're laying lateral and like they're sleeping and you're trying to feed them, they're going to be like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just flowing back and it's just all sitting in my esophagus right now. Yeah. Um, so I do, and I, I try to inform clients to monitor food intake, and this is with and without the use of the tube. Mm -hmm. So you want to, yes, your, your patients can go home and eat dry food. Mm -hmm. it, they, they can eat around the tube. It's perfectly fine. They just need to be aware of how much they're eating because clients will call me all the time. Well, they eat some dry food. And I'm like, enough for the day? Well, no, just a few bites. I'm like, tube stays in. <laughs> you still yeah. need to use it. Yeah, I was going to say, I usually, and I usually tell my clients, tempt them with the food first. Yes, definitely. Right? Before like, feeding. Yeah, great. We'd prefer that they eat on their own. We don't want them to not eat. So I say tempt them first, measure how much they, they eat, and then take that amount out of whatever you're going to be tube feeding. Yeah. Um, and so I say, yeah, sometimes we tube feed and just top them off, right? We just top them off for their, their meal and then they get the calories and the nutrition that they need. Um, because again, we don't want them to waste away because nutrition, especially if a patient is sick, mm -hmm. their nutritional needs are going to be increased because their body needs more calories to, to fix things and do stuff. Yeah. So, you know, yes, resting energy requirement, but a lot of times we're, we're doing higher than RER. So sometimes it's like 1.2 times RER is what yeah. they really need because their body's consuming more nutrition. So it is a balancing act with clients too. And you did talk about like with the water, sometimes I'll have them mix it with, um, it used to be Clinicare. We don't have Clinicare anymore, yeah. but we have the Royal Canin liquid mm -hmm. diets. And the nice thing about that is you're adding KCALs and nutritional value, but also diluting the food. There's yeah. definitely some foods that you can blenderize without any water and, and it'll feed through the tube really well. But if you've got like a special diet, like if you've got a kidney cat, it needs to be on a kidney diet you know, you do need to blenderize it. Um, yeah. So it, and it does make it harder. A lot of those really good diets mm -hmm. out there now. And then I tell people to just monitor the tube. Like we, we wrap our tubes. I mm -hmm. have used the kitty collars before, mm -hmm. um, for the E2 placements on kitty cats that you can buy online. Um, but I usually just use my normal like padding and, and vet wrap. Yeah. So I, I like to <clears throat> show people the kitty collar website, 
Um, it's Kitty, which is K-I-T-T-Y. And then Collar is K-O-L-L-A-R, which we'll link to it in the show notes. The nice thing about their website is they do have like pictures of what normal things look like. They have some videos, they have resources. So in case you're not available, it's, it's a good resource for them to look at. And then especially if you've got a patient who's going to have one in for a long time, like, sorry, let me, let me specify an esophageal feeding tube, not the other ones, but esophageal feeding tubes, they have that collar that they can buy and they're very easy to use. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know some people will have them for their clinics Mm -hmm. and actually send them home for clients and, and which is is a great idea um, yeah. or using them in clinic for patients. Yeah. And we'll um, recommend like t-shirts for the gastrostomy tubes and stuff mm-hmm, like that. So mm-hmm. just to keep it out of the way um, and keep it covered and out of sight, mm-hmm. out of mind. <laughs> yeah. So and, and clients then should up. be looking at it every day. Yeah. Making, yeah. Making sure it's not disgusting because it can get infected. I know it blows my mind when people don't like smell it. Yeah. Like we've had a couple come in for like a rewrap and I'm like, Ooh, I can already tell. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, they've I, gone I know nose I, blind. I know I told you like not to like really mess with it, but like look at it right. um, <laughs> and come in sooner. But yeah, follow up's pretty important too. So discuss how feedings are going if the patient is vomiting. Because if our patients are vomiting with an esophageal tube in, we recommend they come in and we recheck x rays, mm-hmm. coughing, especially. Find out if they're eating on their own and how much. And then just inform clients like medications can be given through the tube if done properly. I've had people like, grind up or mash up like tablets and it just goes in the tube but they don't really mix it with water and then it clogged and then we had to replace the tube because we couldn't get it unclogged because it was like a rock that formed yeah do you um do you give them the recommendations for uh coke in the tube not unless they call me and tell me that it's not working Okay. Okay. In our handouts, we actually say it. So if you've got that really hard plug of food that is stuck in the tube and they can't flush it out with water, we'll say, you know, put three to five mils of Coca-Cola or Coke um, or a cola product in there, in the tube, actually flush, try to flush the tube with some of the Coke product um, because the carbonation and just Coke in general can help break down that food usually. And then, and then you can flush it. And then if that doesn't work, we usually have them come in. Yeah. That's, that's what we do too. We just discuss it if it becomes a problem. So kind of our our cautions for this, if vomiting, I don't, I've said it a lot. If vomiting occurs with either an NG tube um, or an E-tube, which again, patients shouldn't be going home with NG tubes, but they, they might, um, but, or E-tubes, radiographs should be taken just to ensure proper placement. And this is, yeah, we'll maybe bypass like one vomit or regurge. And then if it happens again, we're like, no, seriously, come in and let's, re- let us recheck it. Yeah. We'll say if, I think ours says, um, one, one vomit, you know, skip the rest of the feeding until the next time. Right. And, um, as long as there's no coughing or additional vomiting, go ahead and try the next one. But if there's any more vomiting, they need to come in, um, and just make sure that the placement, it hasn't dislodged and done crazy things. Yeah, exactly. Especially if breathing's changed or any, (laughs) anything's changed. Yeah. We actually had a client call us and they're like, something's sticking out of my cat's mouth. And they came in and like the oh tube was like kind of like they'd meow and you could see it. And I was like, oh God, that's the how, tube of the tube. How did the cat just be like, 
no big deal. <laughs> no, <laughs> no idea. I'd be like, there's something in the back of my throat. <laughs> I know, right? I'd be like constantly like, <laughs> yeah, I'm no, dying. The cat was just like, meow. And I was like, oh God, that's weird. <laughs> that is weird. Cats, they can do whatever they want to. Cats are so weird. Yeah. It's the tip of the week. So one of the things that I would, I would recommend, uh, if you haven't, if you don't have a lot of this, um, experience with, with E-tubes management, placement, that kind of thing, um, looking at wet labs for tube placements, especially at the conferences. I know mm-hmm. I did one or I didn't do one, but I went to one at ACBIM forum, um, which was really cool. It was such a cool wet lab that they showed us about tube placements and endoscopy and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I've gone to a couple and it's, it's always nice to kind of get other opinions as to how yeah. to like suture or something. Cause I've gone to, I went to an N, NE tube one in, at the university of Florida. And then I went to an esophageal tube placement one at mm. VMX, I believe. Nice. So yeah, it was just nice to, because I had just started doing them that I was like, I'm not confident yet. So let me just go get more hands on. Cause we practiced on dummies. It was great mm-hmm. how people just make these dummies. And so I could practice my suturing and my placement is really, really good. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Cause I feel like the, the finger trap thing. Yes. That's what I learned was how <laughs> I to trap. I'm like, how do I do the finger trap to, to suture in the tube so it doesn't move around a lot? Yeah. yeah. I've gotten really good at my finger traps. Yeah. And kind of along those lines, when, when you're talking about that, when you're talking to clients is we use, usually put a Sharpie mark right where the tube inserts into the body. And so having the client know where that mark is so they can see if it's dislodged or not is kind of mm-hmm. nice. Um, and that's all stuff that you can do in a wet lab is like, Oh yeah, well, what are some of your tips and tricks too? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And now for the question of the week. Our question of the week is, have you ever placed or assisted in placement of a feeding tube or peg tube or any of the tubes we've discussed tonight, Mm -hmm. today, whatever time (laughs) you're listening to this? Uh, (laughs) um, And if you have, just let us know your experience. Let us know what you enjoy about doing it or if you wanted to know how we did something versus you do something or vice versa. That is great. Leave us a comment on our vet tech um, our internal medicine for vet tech podcast group page. That page has been a lot of fun lately. Yeah. The Facebook group. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And then the website too, of course, internal medicine for vet techs. And then you can find it under the, the podcast show notes and stuff. Leave a comment there. And then we love to hear from you guys. So please yeah. let us know. Yeah. And, and, and I will say, um, thank you very much to everyone. <laughs> Cause I feel like the podcast listeners, we get more listeners every week. You mm-hmm. guys have been awesome on the Facebook group. Some amazing questions there. And, and, and I'm, I'm excited because I get to learn with you guys on some of these things, which is cool. And so, yeah, we're excited to have you guys join us and hopefully you'll join us next week for new topics. I know we're, we're, this is the end of our GI for now guys. And then we're going to switch gears on you and do some other stuff. Yes. <laughs> I can't wait. I know. I'm very excited. Yeah. This is one of my favorite kind of jams. I know. Uh, Me too. I'm excited. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful week. Please let us know if you want to hear anything specific. If you have questions or just want to say hi, please say hi. Yeah. (laughs) I'll catch you guys next week. Woohoo. All right, you guys. 
You guys keep learning, doing amazing things, taking care of your patients, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.